Good afternoon. Well, maybe that depends on the weather. But more on that later. It's 4 p.m., second Tuesday of the month. Time for Boat Talk here on Virus Free Community Radio, WERU-FM Blue Hill. Boat Talk is usually a live call-in show, but things being as they are, this is a socially responsible pre-recorded show, so no calls can be taken during this show. We start with a talk with Greg Latimer, a Mainer who has just written a book about pirates. There's a new book coming out next Monday by Maine author Greg Latimer. That sounds pretty interesting. I talked with the author. Yeah, it's coming out June 15th, Pirates and Lost Treasure of Coastal Maine. Uh, We did start with Dixie Bull early on, who was a semi-legendary pilot that operated here in the early 1600s in Maine, um, and is particularly known to most likely have raided the Pemaquid fishing colony, um, and then perhaps ranged a little bit further south. We actually first explain um, some things that you won't read about a lot in Pirates in order to get people familiar enough with piracy uh, to feel comfortable reading the book. Uh, We talk about the different kinds of pirates that there were, um, or so-called pirates. There were pirates, which were actual sea rovers that imported ships and were illegal. There were privateers that were licensed by certain countries. And there were wreckers. Some of these wreckers would uh, set out lights on shore at night to tempt ships into wrecking on rocks. These were pretty awful people. They would generally murder the whole crew and then take whatever was on the ship. And then there were other wreckers that were legal wreckers, very much like privateers, who were um, commissioned to go to places like um, the Caribbean and uh, recover treasure from Spanish galleons that had sunk there. And then we talk about pirate politics and practices. Very few people know that um, on many pirate ships, there was a very uh, equal system of voting and share outs, and uh, every man on the crew had a vote for what what was going to be happening. And then after that, we get into the actual pirates of Maine um, and pirates that were supposed to be in Maine, like Captain Kidd, who was probably never here. He wasn't a pirate. He was a privateer. Yeah, there's rather persistent legend about um, Captain Kidd and treasure in Deer Island, Maine, and that the uh, Astor family found the treasure, and that's what they used to start their real estate fortune. I get into that pretty thoroughly. My background is as an investigative reporter, police evidence photographer in the LA area. And um, so that's pretty much how I look at things. And I investigated that quite thoroughly. And we have uh, from point A to point B about how that legend started and and how it essentially isn't true. Um, It was uh, the product of a fertile mind who wrote a a book actually. And uh, we've got it all laid out uh, in the book there. If you, if you Google Captain Kidd's Treasure Maine, you get about a million hits. Um, it, you know, people would think that he buried treasure on every island in Maine and most of the inland areas as well. Um, in fact, he probably never made it north of Boston. There's one chapter where we've been able to reveal um, a location where pirate treasure may still be hidden in Maine, and it follows a fairly logical course. Although I don't think any, anyone will ever find it because it's the whole area has been 
landscaped and changed completely. So whatever was there is probably lost and buried forever. Some of the uh, chapters are pretty long. We do a lot of detail about Black, Black Bart Roberts or Bartholomew Roberts, and also about Captain Kidd. Not only we learn about Captain Kidd in Maine, but what led up um, to Captain Kidd in the stories and, and basically the year he spent um, as a privateer under the commission of, of royalty and business investors um, with the purpose of capturing pirates in the Indian Ocean and taking their treasure and returning it to his investors for a share. Um, but with Bartholomew Roberts, we also find out, you know, the pirates in Maine went all over the world. Pirates were not folks to stay in one place for very long. And we do get into those details. So some of the chapters are pretty uh, detailed. We, uh, we do, we're fortunate to have some good maps. Uh, there is a, a really incredible battle that Bart Roberts fought with an English ship um, over at the Calabar River in present day Nigeria, West Africa. And we were fortunate through research to be able to find a very detailed map of that area and are able to share the point by point of that battle that led to Bartholomew Roberts' death and the possibility that a Golden Cross he wore ended up finding its way all the way up here to Maine as part of the Phippsburg treasure. We also have, um, we're very fortunate in this state to have a fellow named George and his wife, Joni Gray, uh, who have an incredible collection of uh, weapons from the pirate period of the 1600s and 1700s, including firearms and swords. And we have a good collection of photos, uh, very detailed photos. Of course, having been a police evidence photographer, I'm used to taking detailed photos. And um, folks will find that very interesting, what went into the weaponry that pirates used at the time. Just what makes a pirate? Well, there were, certainly there were, um, you know, in any bunch of people that are roaming around lawlessly, you're going to find some psychotics. But people will be surprised to find most pirates didn't really want to do anybody any harm. They just wanted to take the loot and get out. Um, and so they used a, a threats of violence and overwhelming force uh, to cause the uh, crews on these uh, ships they were trying to capture uh, to simply give up, and that way they could board. Um, they also weren't in the business of sinking ships. Uh, the type of ordnance they used in their artillery and the style of battle they engaged um, were, were essentially to either uh, disable the crew or to convince the crew not to fight. Um, and the uh, ordnance that they use and the style that they use would generally concentrate on rigging and sails and the top of the deck as opposed to firing a large cannonball into the hull. Captain Kidd's ship was outfitted with very light guns. Not only did it make it faster, but he also had no interest in sinking ships. So certainly there were some guys out there that were, um, that were psychotic. Um, but there were a lot of folks out there that were just there to turn a buck. Um, Blackbeard, for instance, would be a pirate that most people would think had killed a lot of folks during his lifetime. Um, when the historical record shows that he didn't personally kill anybody until uh, the final fight at Okra Even readers that aren't interested in pirates will find this an interesting book in that there's a lot of stuff we talk about that people have never really been conscious of in terms of pirates. As I mentioned there, that they weren't predispositioned to killing everybody on the crew. 
Um, they're a very democratic political system, uh, very even uh, share outs from, between the captain and the crew and things like that. And we also bring up, you know, people thought they knew everything about Captain Kidd. We have a very detailed description of his last voyage um, that they may not have uh, read before. Uh, same thing with Bartholomew Roberts and many of the other pirates. Um, so I'm hoping that we'll have an audience that isn't just folks that read about pirates all the time, but folks that don't normally read about pirates and would be interested in the fact that these were men and women, often without a country. The only country that they, they were from was the ship that they were on at the time, um, making their own way in the world as a rugged individualist. And uh, the difference between life on an English merchant, merchant ship and land or a Royal Navy ship and life on a pirate ship were completely different. And the pirate ship was a, a much, much more preferred alternative. Many pirates were recruited um, from merchant vessels that were captured by pirates and crew members on the merchant vessel decided it would be more lucrative and more fun. Then we talked about pirate nutrition. From what I understand, the, the, uh, the Royal Navy used to uh, ration a gallon of small beer and a pint of rum every day for every sailor, which must have made for some interesting evenings wow. on those ships. Yeah. Uh, so the, the pirates probably had more rum when they had it and less rum when they didn't have it. But I've actually um, researched and discovered the recipe for grog which was um, prescribed by a, uh, a Royal Navy doctor to prevent scurvy. Essentially, it's um, cane sugar, um, lime juice, and water mixed with the rum. And it actually makes a pretty good drink. Um, better with ice cubes than without. Um, but uh, a, a, a nice drink handed down through the ages to prevent scurvy, um, which people could enjoy now. Very few people know that the gimlet um, was also a, a Royal Navy product, um, and it was used for Royal Navy officers um, who became required for them to add a squeeze of fresh lime to their gin ration. The officers got a gin ration. Um, so that is the, the, the beginnings of a cocktail we now call the Gimlet. Greg also has a, a local business. The business that we have in Bar Harbor, as well as most of the coast, has to do with historical tours. Um, and it's called Red Cloak Tours. Of course, um, given the current situation, we're not doing too many tours in the field, but we are doing some tours, um, virtual tours and things like that. And that's at uh, redcloaktours.com. When, we, when we're doing personal tours before the age of COVID, um, we have ladies in red cloaks that people have probably seen there in Bar Harbor, as well as nine other uh, main towns that we do tours in. And our initial product was Haunted History Tours, but now we're offering all kinds of tours. We're actually uh, doing it by, we're calling them tele-tours. And we're live, uh, you have a live tour guide on the phone guiding you through the tour. By the way, those tours include uh, maritime history of Bar Harbor as well. The reps, website is redcloaktours.com. If you're interested in uh, making an early reserve purchase of the book, we have a page on a, in our store at the website I mentioned for purchasing Pirates and Lost Treasure of Coastal Maine. People should um, be looking for, we're, we're looking at doing some virtual events regarding this book, um, virtual book signings, um, pirate talks, things like that. 
and uh, we'll be issuing press releases and, and things like that when those come out. So that's something people can keep an eye out for. The name again is Pirates and Lost Treasure of Coastal Maine. It's published by the History Press. Um, you should be able to find it in, um, in, in most bookstores. That's Greg Latimer, author of Pirates and Lost Treasure of Coastal Maine. Thank you, Greg. John Johansson is a regular contributor to Boat Talk and editor of Maine Coastal News. He routinely visits Maine Boat Shop and is just getting out again. I'm careful about going into yards because of the fact that, you know, some of them are shut down and I don't want to be the one that causes a problem. So, you know, I always call and ask if, uh, if I can come in. One of the trips I made uh, last week was down uh, mid-coast. I went down to, uh, through Brooklyn, uh, down into Stonington, and then over to Penobscot. Uh, I stopped in at Westmac. Uh They've got all their bays full and orders still coming. Uh, they've got a brand new boat in the water. Uh, that boat that they were building for Portland to Greenlaw last year, uh, which is, I think, the third one that she hasn't got when it was finished. <laughs> I guess they sell them out from under the under her. Huh. Uh, so they've bought a Westmac, and I believe it's a Westmac 50 with pod drives. And she's in the yard in front of the main shop, kind of in front of the office too. And they're going to tear her apart and uh, convert her for a boat for Linda Greenlaw. So if you go by that way, headed down through Surrey, uh, towards, uh, from Ellsworth to uh, Booth, uh, Blue Hill, you'll see her sitting right in the front yard. So they've got quite a few boats. Most of them, there's a research vessel that's going to Georgia. There's another uh, boat that uh, uh, sport fisherman that's the second owner of a West Mac and she's almost done. She's got twin uh, diesels in her, big diesels. I think they're C-18 cats. And then I went from there and I, I stopped at uh, Eric Dow's boat shop and Eric was working on a uh, pea pod that he had, to- uh, had partially rebuilt and then repainted. But the interesting project there is the airplane. And I didn't realize how close you have to be when you do airplanes, but your tolerance is with a, is a millimeter and a millimeter isn't very much. He's got the wings. The wings are all done. Luke has been doing it with him. I I think it's Luke's project and uh, the wings are all done, but I think that was partially done by the owner because the owner has to build so many percent of it so that he can get it uh, classified uh, with a special license. Yeah. So if it's home built, then they, I guess they can fly it without too much problems. But if it's, you know, built by other people, you know, now you have to have all kinds of licenses and stuff. So anyway, so that's kind of on hold, you know, because they're getting spring uh, boats ready. They didn't have too much, of a problem with people saying no to uh, putting their boat in this year. Cause that, 
that's been a concern up and down the coast of how many people are not going to go boating this year. But my feeling is, is if, if you're a real boater, your boat's going in the water. So uh, let's see. Oh, one of the, uh, I swung through uh, Stonington, tried to stop in at uh, uh, Peter Buxton's shop, in, uh, which is actually in Sunset. And because he's working on a 1903 oyster sloop, and the owner has actually said they're going to try to complete it this year, which a lot of us have been waiting, I don't know how many years for this thing to get completed, but it's, he had it to a point where the hull was done, uh, some of the interior, and this winter he was putting on the deck what little interior she has. And I think they were going to work on the spars too. So, you know, hopefully sometime this summer she goes overboard. And then when I came off the island, I stopped in at Jeff Eaton's boat shop on Deer Isle. Uh, he's got the mold, which he purchased from his cousin, Ronnie Eaton, which lives just down the road from him. And uh, she's a 25-footer, and he believes it's the old Mitchell Cove 20-foot mold which had been extended. And he's actually put together a nice little outboard boat that's going to be for a local fisherman. You know, uh, it's a good beginner's boat, or as he said, it's a good boat to retire in because <laughs> it's not so bad. Uh, but she's nearing completion. So she's probably, you know, in the scheme of things, she's probably going to be done in a week or two. And I'm going to throw pictures of all of this stuff up online uh, on my Facebook page. So anybody that's interested, they can go to John Johansson and look at the stuff. Uh, one of the projects I actually took on because I've got plenty of time. And so I actually took care of my own boat this year. So I painted the top sides, learned that you should roll and tip it, not paint it with a brush. Painted the bottom, was informed by the wife who was helping that this is the last time she will paint the bottom of the boat. <laughs> she did put the name on her, the Cindy Jen, which uh, she's an interesting boat because she was built in 1964 by Clinton Beale on Beale's Island. It first went out to Isla Ho as the Bernadette, Bernadette and Geraldine for Phil Alley. Then Phil Alley sold it to Reggie Alley in Jonesport and she hailed from there for probably another 20 years. So around 2000, she came to Lemoyne and Cam Crawford, which is the son of uh, Glenn Crawford who owns CNC machine there in Ellsworth. Uh, he used it through high school as his beginning lobster boat. And then it got donated around and somebody put a lot of money into it and nobody wanted to pay the big bucks for it. And, I ended up with it. Uh, let's see. I actually made a run all the way down to uh, Kittery, snuck over the border, uh, got into Wentworth Marina, which is eh, pretty full. Uh, that's the big marina there in Portsmouth, uh, just as you're going out of the harbor on the New Hampshire side. I stopped in at Elliott uh, at Kittery Point Yacht Yard and uh, took pictures of some of the wooden boats that are there. Uh, the uh, 
there's a couple of real nice. Uh, the Sally Rochelle uh, is owned by a local lobster fisherman that fishes out of Rhine, New Hampshire. And that's a Peter Cass boat, a 42-footer that I think was built in 1998, if I'm not mistaken. And I did find a couple boats in there that I didn't know who built, and I'm hoping to find out. One was called Good Enough, and it's spelled funny. It's good with an E, and then enough is spelled E-N-U-F-F. -F. And it looks like a down east boat, but I didn't know which builder it was. Uh, then I came up, and I stopped at the new Hamilton Marine that's in Kittery. It's not open yet, but it's not far away from being open. Probably two, three, maybe the end of the month. Uh, they weren't really sure. It all depended on how much was coming through the door for supplies that they could put on the shelves so that they were, you know, had everything that they needed before they actually opened the doors. Uh, this weekend, I was invited over to North Haven, and that was real interesting. I went over there specifically to see a Holland 32 that's being rebuilt. It was owned by uh, Richard Williams, who is known as Guico Williams, on Vinyl Haven, and a young guy, or a guy from the yard has bought it, and he's totally refurbished the boat. It was a lobster boat. It still will be, or it will be outfitted as a lobster boat, uh, but they've actually gone through and done a total cosmetic job on her. But it was interesting walking through that yard. It's called Thayer Why Not Boatyard on North Haven, and uh, there's some very interesting uh, launches. And one of them was called the Warden's Wary. And I believe that was built in Camden. And she's not very big, but she's a basket case. Uh, she's probably going to, if anybody wants to take it on. But she's a small launch. She's only like 18 or 20 feet long. But she's going to be a total rebuild. You know, so I'm not sure she's going to get that or whether she'll just end up you know, laying there and go, going to pieces. But then we went over to uh, uh, Foy Brown's Yard, which is called J.O. Brown's Yard on North Haven. And there was a very interesting boat there called Nona. And I wasn't sure who built her. We we're thinking it might be a Gawa boat, but it looks a little big for a Gawa boat, but I could be wrong. Uh, it does have the lines of a Jones Porter, but not sure. So if anybody knows that, it would be nice that, you know, we figure that one out. Uh, then last week, uh, mainly, built, mainly uh, boats in Cushing launched a brand new boat, a Libby 47. The Libbies are produced up in East Machias by East Bay Boat Shop. And this is a Libby 47, which is a stretched 41. And she is going to go to... Rockport, Massachusetts, for a very interesting guy, uh, Steve Boudreau, uh, and he fishes in town there, so I interviewed him for the next issue. Yesterday, I made a run up to uh, uh, Moosehead Lake, and I went up there to drop papers off because I had done a story on the Katahdin, who is all, which is also known as Katie. And they were painting her, despite the cool weather. It probably wasn't much over 55 up there, blowing right down the, uh, the lake, uh, right into Greenville. Uh, 
but she's almost ready. They're planning to start uh, tours the end of the month. So I'm not sure, you know, up there, they don't have much of a problem with the virus. So I don't know what, you know, their, what they have to do, their protocol for uh, getting underway for the year and how many people they can take. But she's actually been repowered. She's got a new C18 cat in her, which has been detuned to about 469 horsepower. And they've redone her total electrical system. And that was all done by uh, some help from the people that uh, work at the museum up there, the Moose, Moosehead Marine Museum. And also the shipyard at Booth Bay Harbor, which is owned by Bristol Marine out of Bristol, Rhode Island. Uh, they go up with a, um, a trailer and work on it all winter usually. And now they're raising money to do the boat deck, the uh, main deck on her for next year. And I'm not sure how that's going to go. Everything seems to be going okay. The boat shops have, seem to be fine. Uh, there seems to be less lobster boats being built, which has been, you know, happening over the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's been replaced by sport fishermen. But it seems that the coast is opening up. Some of the yards are still closed, but a lot of people were working on their boats. And it was fun to get into the yard and actually meet those people. I've always said that, you know, if going up and down the coast is one thing, but to actually be on the water or working on a boat in a boat yard, you're going to meet people that you normally would never meet otherwise because they don't get out. They do their thing and disappear. Oh, I know one that was real interesting. I stopped in at Blue Jackets. You know the model company that's right across yep, yep. Hamilton Marine and Searsport? And I wondered, you know, oh, this, this might not be good. You know, they, they might not have any business. It's just the opposite. They said it's actually better than Christmas. You think about it, and it does make sense. It does. Uh, what, you know, what else are you going to do? You, you know, you've got all, a lot of people have got a lot of free time. Models today are not as hard as they were uh, even 20 years ago. A lot of it's all laser cut, so it's kind of almost like putting together the plastic models we did as kids. You know, a lot of the uh, metal is already cut for you. All of the fittings are all nicely done. So basically, it's just put together. They've got some really neat models in there that I'd like to build. I've got, I think, 26 in boxes out back that I haven't touched yet. You still have a half model to finish too. Well, that's that was I I found it has a major problem. Somebody didn't measure right, and so it's going to be a test. Oh, lobster boat racing. Oh yeah, what's going to be up with that? Well, I think we're all set. Uh, we had the two races cancel, both Harpswell and Booth Bay. I think they were a little premature when they canceled, but that's up to them. They run their own races. Uh, we're going to start on the 27th of June. We're going to, the first race is in Rockland. So anybody that wants to come and see that can come down and stand on the breakwater because we run right down the breakwater on the inside. Uh, you know, and I'm sure that there's plenty of room there and you can keep your social distancing easily, even if you're just standing there. Uh, then the next morning, we're headed to uh, Bass Harbor. Now, nothing, as I understand, and I'm going to email the committees 
tonight or tomorrow morning, I understand that there'll be nothing on the dock at Bass Harbor. There won't even be sign up on the dock. I think we're going to go out and we're going to do it on the barge. So you know, that limits, you know, any possibility, you know, of somebody spreading it to a lot of people, you know. Yeah, I was there last year. A lot of people on the dock. You're right. Yeah. You know, and it's a good time and it's too bad. And I already know that we've got about 10 boats coming down from uh, Jonesport, Millbridge, that area. Uh, they probably even come from uh, Cutler, as far as Cutler. Dave Rowe and first mate Stacy have been doing the Great Loop, basically circling the eastern half of the United States. They started last summer and have just returned. Here is the conclusion of their adventure. This is Alan Sprague for uh, Boat Talk, and we're doing our, our final, uh, final edition of Dave and Stacy going around the Great Loop. And so we'll start out with uh, Dave, and uh, we'll let Stacy introduce herself, too. Hi there. This is Dave Rowe, and I've been captain of the Stink of Stinkpot for uh, the last year. As we've gone around the Great Loop, it's been a blast. And I'm Stacy. I'm the first mate. I had a, a little bit of boating experience, but now I'm an old salt. So, Dave and Stacy, welcome back to Maine. Thank you, Alan. It's beautiful here. We've seen a lot of places, and nothing like the rocky coast of Maine. I'll agree with that. When did you arrive in Portland? Wednesday. We can't, We got in about, what was it, 1 or 2 in the afternoon on Wednesday? Yeah, it was a short day. We started Wednesday in Wells. There's a town dock down in Wells where anybody can stay for $30 a night as long as you don't mind no power and no water. <laughs> One of the things we've found is the further north you go, uh, the more expensive it is to be a transient because the, the season's so short. They have to make the money in a much comp more compressed period of time. Right. At least this is what I expect is the, the cause. One interesting thing we found after 8,000 miles of boating is that our anchor doesn't seem to hook very well in New England, really from New Jersey north. And so we were really excited to pay $30 to tie up on a dock for our last night at sea because we'd been having to get up because of anchor drag alarms and yeah it's been kind of kind of crazy i i don't know what i should replace my delta with but it didn't want to hook hardly at all in new jersey it hooked very tentatively in new york and and connecticut and we we got a good hook uh with a current in, in Plymouth, but it was a sandy bottom there. So, I, But uh, I don't know if, it, if it's the fine mud or, or what we're dealing with, but we, we've had trouble getting a good hook in the Northeast oh. ever since we left Maryland. Yeah, it's a, it's a plow. See a lot of them around here. You'd think uh, they'd work. Hey, exactly. I'm, I'm wondering what, what would be better at, at this point. Uh, we, we tried to set the hook... In New Jersey, uh, I think maybe 10 times in one area and ended up uh, leaving the area entirely and going to another another spot just because we could not get a good hook no matter what we did. Huh. So uh, now now I'm thinking to myself, I want to get a, a, a second anchor of that size. I You know, I have a kedge aboard. It's a Danforth-style kedge. 
but that's not going to hold the boat. I need something substantial. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, we, we had a hard time getting a good hook once we left Maryland. It just, no man, no matter where we went, it, it just did not seem to want to set. And, uh, you know, we tried letting out all the road we had in a few spots and we would just keep, you know, doing a knot in reverse trying to set it uh, until we were back in the channel. And and uh, <laughs> near as I can tell, that's not the way to set an anchor. I'll, I mean, the funny thing is, is this anchor has been flawless all around the loop. Uh, and when we started out last year, uh, we, we started in Maryland, we got to New Jersey, and, and the first thing we did was drag anchor in New Jersey. Uh, and we just, we, you know, so that's a fluke. We wrote it up to just be in a, a situation that wouldn't bite us again, and it didn't until we got back to New Jersey. <laughs> So now I'm shopping. I, I want to know what would be the best anchor for the Northeast if, if it's not a plow. Hmm. Well, if this were a call-in show, we might get some answers. <laughs> <laughs> now maybe, maybe people can, can write us and let us know. Uh, you know, get on Facebook, uh, search for Our Adventures on Stinkpot, and, and drop us uh, a message. Comments can also be sent to our email address, boattalk at gmail.com. Here's Stacy with John Hansen joining us. It was interesting for me to get a real taste of ocean cruising because when Dave told me about the Great Loop, he told me how it was inland waters and, and it made me feel confident that I could handle it. And then I found out from New Jersey north... <laughs> You're in the ocean, and, and I initially didn't want to do it. It's like small boat, big ocean. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if your listeners are aware of this, but since COVID-19 hit, there's a lot less planes in the sky. And apparently, meteorologists rely on data that comes from flying airplanes. And they don't even know it. That That's the funny thing is the meteorologists that are out there don't know how much data they collect from these airplanes in the sky. And as they've scaled back the number of, of uh, commercial flights, the, the weather data just has really gone to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. The marine forecast that normally we would find out wave height, period, direction, wind direction, and then set out for the day has been completely inaccurate it's just a huh. false and not a little bit wrong but a hundred percent wrong mm -hmm. uh when when we left the cape cod canal coming coming uh, north we got out into cape cod bay and we were supposed to come out into flat seas and what we came out into really what well, if, if i'm i'd i'd be wrong if i said it was terrible uh, but it was real uncomfortable. Uh, it was two-foot seas with about a two-foot period, uh, which it, is just enough of a short uh, – it's just short enough of a period to make a two-foot sea really uncomfortable, you know. So it's a lot of banging and slapping and, and spray, you know, and spray the, the bow up in the air when you really would like to see the, the uh, lobster pots. Uh, and, you know, it, it was not – 
the ideal con conditions that the weather forecast and the wind forecast and the wave forecast led us to believe we were going to be driving into. Had we known uh, what the actual conditions were, uh, as opposed to the forecast conditions, we might have sat still for another 24 hours. Or we would have tied our TV down. <laughs> yeah, or we would have prepared the boat a little better. We've used windy, we've used uh, uh, Marv's. Marv's weather, uh, and we've used the National Weather Service, we've used uh, Predict Wind, uh, yeah. and those those have always been rock solid for us, but the last two or three months since COVID-19 has happened, they just really have not been able to give us a good, accurate forecast. I wonder if they're not just going out. Well, no, uh, and we, we talked about this earlier in the show, but uh, what's happening is, or, or at least what we've been told is happening, is that uh, commercial air, airlines collect weather data. Mm -hmm. And with COVID-19, a lot of flights have been canceled. Right. Uh, so we're not getting the proliferation of weather data that, that right. normally would be there. Uh, yeah. And it, it's just, it's leading to inaccurate wave and wind forecasts. We yeah. came out of that canal. What is it? Cape Cod Canal. Right. And there were like four foot standing waves waiting for us with the, the current mm. and the wind. and. Yeah. And, and, you know, that was exiting the canal. That was a surprise. And then once we got into uh, Cape Cod Bay proper, it was just, we like I said, we were just getting slapped around. Our original itinerary, uh, as we had planned it, based on the weather, was to run up to Boston. Uh, and instead, we pulled into Plymouth and said, there's just no point in, in beating ourselves up. Uh, so we spent the night in Plymouth. Uh, and then the next morning, ventured out. And it, it was a little gentler. Uh, we, weren't getting, we weren't catching the spray we were the day before, which on, on this boat, uh, as cold as it's been, we've we've been using our uh, our lower helm since we have two stations, and uh, the lower helm relies on being able to see through the damned windshield. <laughs> when you have you, no wiper. Well, we have we have three wipers, but uh, the way this boat is configured, the, the the pilot house is a little bit low, the prow is a little high, uh, and when you have uh, when you have waves, you know, pulling the bow up, you know, every two seconds, you lose sight of the lobster pots, uh, which is something you don't want to really lose sight of. Is it going to be the end of our, our, our trip loop? So thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us all these past months. Oh, definitely, Alan. We've, we've had a good time talking with you all. Uh, Stacy and I, obviously, I mean, it's, it's been a year. Uh, that we've been out uh, just a week shy of a year, uh, and we've we've seen some tremendous things and and done some tremendous things, uh, and it I can't imagine uh, having not gone through all of all that we have. This, it's been a life changing experience. Yeah, we couldn't recommend the loop more highly to anyone who's even partially inclined to trying to make it work. It's it's worth it. And I, I also, uh, at, in the same breath, uh, for those who, who are content to sit on their couch and just listen to other people talk about these things, uh, I, I would say it, if you don't have a burn in the bottom of your belly to do something like this, because it's crazy, uh, by all means, sit home. Uh, 
it, this, this is not for the faint of heart. It's, it's definitely, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of energy that you're going to expend. Uh, it, it, it takes some money, some, you know, some wits, uh, and a good deal of seamanship and, and, uh, uh, as much as I recommend doing this trip, if, uh, if you, it's something you feel you've got to do, uh, and you have the skills to do it, I can also say absolutely don't do it. Uh, if, if this is, if you're going to buy a boat, do it and then sell the boat, you know, it's not a vacation. <laughs> it's not a vacation. It's not for the hell of it. Uh, it's not even for the heck of it. It's, 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 it's some real seamanship required. Uh, and we, we saw some things out there from other people doing the loop that, uh, uh, these folks should not have been on boats. Uh, so, you know, from that standpoint, <laughs> Uh, alone, I, I would say, you know, make sure you have your priorities in order and you know what the hell you're doing. So was it worth doing? Absolutely. I'd do it again in a heartbeat. Com- completely, you know, without a doubt. Uh, we we mentioned we'd uh, probably advise if anyone wanted to do this that, that they know what they're doing and, and don't just do it to check off a, a box on a, a bucket list. You know, yeah. this serious man, um, mariners need apply. It's it's not something that uh, everybody should do. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. I'd do it again. And you found it yeah. really inspiring. I mean, you wrote an entire album of new music <laughs> on this trip. I mean, people can go to your website, DaveRowMusic.com, if we ever start doing concerts again, or you'll do some online concerts probably. But yeah. Something about getting off the couch and doing something really important and challenging and life-changing just kind of gets those creative juices going and living life to the fullest. It was, it was cool. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Well, think about which one you're going to do next. <laughs> Maybe well, the Downey Circle. <clears throat> Uh, well, we've talked about the Downing Circle Loop, but that one, uh, I don't know that this boat really is suited for it. I think I'd want a deeper draft if we were going to do that. Right. Uh, just How it, much it, do you draw? We draw 38 inches, which is great for near coastal, but when we start getting offshore, we bounce like a cork. We don't have stabilizers, and this boat, right. e- even if I wanted to put stabilizers in it, she doesn't have the structural integrity to take them. So I really think that something a little heavier, uh, a little deeper draft uh, to do to do the down east loop. Go for the, for those that don't know, that goes up around Nova Scotia uh, and Cape Cape Breton, Prince Edward Island, all that, and, and then right. down the St. Lawrence Seaway uh, into the Great Lakes, and then uh, back down through. Uh, uh, canals and rivers to get to the Hudson River, which brings you back to the Atlantic Ocean and, yeah. and back up. That's the Downing nice. Circle Loop. Well, thanks for the time that you've spent with us. I Not mean, at all. Inter- it's been real interesting. We've we've had a, a wonderful time. It, it's been a fascinating trip, and I, I think I said earlier, I, I wouldn't have traded a, mil- a moment of it for anything. Well, it'll be interesting to see how many people we spark to try to do it. Anybody that has any any inkling of doing this, make sure you know what the hell you're doing first. Right. We saw a lot of 
really bad boat handling on the loop. I, I think if there's one thing I came away from this with, it's a, an appreciation for what skills are worth. If you want to get a boat and learn how to run a boat and then do the loop, absolutely. Right. Uh, and and you must have gained some of that. Oh, we both gained skills on this trip. Right. You know, yeah. uh, I, we, we've, we just snuck, what, 2,000 hours underway under our belts or mm-hmm. thereabouts. Uh, and, yeah, it, there's, there's nothing uh, like experience. And we have that in spades at this point. It, this has been a lot of fun. I, it really has. It's good getting to know you folks and doing this. I, I I can't imagine this trip without you at this point. So thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks thank, for having us. Thank you both, uh, Alan and, and John. And, and thank you to Mike. I, I know he had trouble getting uh, a word in edgewise, but, uh, you know, a for effort, and, and uh, we hope to bump into you all some other time. There's the final chapter of Dave and Stacy's adventures on Stinkpot as they complete the Great Loop. Many thanks to them. Now we're excited to hear the new album from Dave Rowe. We'll let you know when it comes out. Next, we're going to close the show with a clip from 2005 with Mike Joyce and Giffy Full talking with Anna Miller, Schooner Cook, a job that has changed a lot this year. Guest Anna Miller, a Schooner Cook from the uh, Maine Windjammers, and why don't we join that conversation in progress. Sitting back and listening so far. I, I want to hear some words of wisdom from this young lady. <laughs> Anna, I should, I should add, has made this issue of Botox so much better looking than all the previous ones just by showing up here. <laughs> Anna uh, got a job last summer cooking on a schooner. And, uh, we're, uh, you know, you're not, you weren't a boater at the time, were you? Nope, still and, not a boater. And now you're I'm just a, a cook. Now you're a professional schooner <laughs> cook. So... Uh, How'd you get? How'd you get fixed up? And who'd you get fixed up with? Well, I got into it um, after moving to Maine. I guess uh, like seven years ago now. I've worked under the Deer Isle Bridge and watched all those schooners come underneath the bridge every single summer. I thought, you know what? That might be fun. So I contacted all the schooner captains, and one called me back and hired me. So I went to his house, had an interview, and I said, "Well, I don't know anything about boats." And he's like, "Oh, well, at least you can cook. So that that's a that's a good thing." And I said, well, um, I think I'll go for the job. And he's like, well, he goes, are you prone to motion sickness? I said, I have no idea, but I'll find out. (laughs) Thank goodness I'm not. (laughs) And what boat were we talking about? I was on Schooner Mercantile and Schooner Grace Bailey. Mercantile and Grace Bailey. Yep. Okay, now uh, what kind of uh, galleys do we have here? Wood stoves? Wood stoves. Both vessels have wood stoves. And the funny thing is the galleys on the boats are bigger than most restaurants I've worked in. So it was nice and roomy for me anyway. Wow. Yeah. Now, I used to love cooking with my wood stove with the water tank and all that. And, uh, boy, in the warming oven, I love that thing. But it's it's a skill acquired, basically, isn't it? It's not yep. like cooking in a propane uh, restaurant it's definitely much slower, but it, it's a lot of fun. And I like the fact that it's on all day long. You can have about eight pots on the stovetop, the oven full of stuff, and things just hanging out on the wood stove. It's fun. Okay, all day. Well, let's start now. Is the uh, is there one cook on a schooner? You've got helpers? Uh... 
one cook and then usually a messmate that helps them out. Okay. Uh, how many customers and crew do we have on this trip that we're fantasizing about? On our boats, we take 29 passengers and the five crew, so 34 people at most. We're cooking for 34 people every day on a wood stove. <laughs> yes. Good trip. Breakfast, lunch, Downstairs dinner, two snacks. Boat. Okay, I can see you've got your job cut out for you. What time we got to get up and get we got to get up in front of people, don't we? Oh yeah. Get things hot. Four o'clock is when my morning started every day. Wow. Four o'clock in the morning. Throw some I love it. the stove. Get the water hot. Yep, exactly. Okay, get what, the coffee going. What's for breakfast? The, the, um, those are wonderful trips. I think they're one of the best trips in the United States. Yep. I really do, and and. A lot of the passengers, they all like to help in the galley a little bit, too. Oh, they love it. Yeah. yeah. I'd love to play passenger sometime, but being yeah. the crew is just great. I yeah, love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah my, um, I had a funny experience a few years ago. One of my family members asked me if I'd be willing to go on a schooner trip. Figured I was too stuck up or something. <laughs> and I said, well, I'll tell you, if you want to go, I'll send my deposit today. I'll go in a heartbeat. Yeah. So we went for a week, and we went on the Heritage, and we just had a wonderful time. Yeah. Just Doug a wonderful Ray. group of people. They and built that boat. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Just a, it was, they're great trips. They really are. There's very few people uh, that show up that don't take to the schooner trips, but some people apparently are surprised. When they get there, and every once in a while, I hear we talked to uh, we had Captain Brenda Walker from Isaac Evans here yes. years ago, and she has a famous story where a fella, his secretary, booked a cruise for him and his wife, and they showed up in high heels with Gucci bags and <laughs> yep. on, the, on the dock, and <laughs> expecting the Princess of the Seas and, and the Captain Steubing, you know, the yep. love boat. Yeah. And uh, got Brenda and the Isaac Evans instead, and, and got themselves a competition. She went up and bought some clothes and, and got them turned around, and they had a good time. Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't what they and, expected. And it's interesting yeah. because some some people come back this, every year, you know, don't they? Yeah. Oh, even this summer. Yeah. This was second summer working on it, and I had a lot of repeat passengers yeah, yeah. that came yeah, back. Yeah. So that was fun. Great, great. Now, we're, uh, we're on an anchor somewhere in a beautiful uh, foggy cove, and we're up at 4 o'clock in the morning. What's for breakfast today? Blueberry pancakes, most likely. All right. And sausages. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and lots of maple syrup to go with it. <laughs> and lots of fruit and juices. I mean, you of try course. to smor yep. you smorgasbord them to death, don't mm -hmm. you? Oh, pretty much. Oh, yeah, it's just an eating fest yeah. <laughs> is what it is. Um, Having started breakfast at 4 o'clock, you're probably already uh, worrying about lunch and supper, too, aren't you? I'm halfway through lunch by the time breakfast is served. <laughs> no kidding. It's got to be on the stovetop or in the oven, something like that. Okay. And yeah. what kind of an affair is lunch? Just a bologna sandwich and uh, a small bag of potato chips passed out to everybody? Always something hot, whether it be fish chowder or some chili or a big pan of lasagna. Always something hot. Do you bake your own breads? Always. Every, every two days I break my own bread. Wow. Yep. And uh, she's not a loafer. <laughs> again, people coming in and out of the galley all day now. How long is the chain that, that connects you to the stove there? Can you get out on deck every <laughs> once in a while? And this summer, I was I was able to do a little bit more. I, I it down more to a science, so I was able to figure out the timing a little better. And a lot of times between lunch and dinner, I could turn the stove off completely and just hang out up on deck for a few hours uh -huh. and learn some sailing from the rest of the crew and the captain and ask them questions all afternoon. Play sailor girl, and yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, the first time I ever grabbed onto uh, the uh, halyard of a, a schooner mainsail, I, I uh, jumped up in the air. I was going to give a lusty big pull down, you know, and I was surprised by the purchase of it, and I ended up falling on the deck. Oh, gosh. Because it was, you know, it was so many uh, 
uh, turns on the pulleys there that you didn't have to really put all your weight on it. You just pull on it. So, <laughs> I, you know, I thought it was going to be a lot heavier. Yeah. So uh, sailing a schooner is an interesting uh that's an interesting way to start off with your boat experience. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. It was a blast, yeah. Favorite places? Oh, let me think. God, they're pretty much all pretty, but the uh, especially the Western Bay, Penobscot Bay, is just beautiful. Sailing throughout there. Leaving Camden Harbor the first morning is always fun. The uh, schooner thing's kind of social, too. They uh, go around uh, not all by themselves. They scatter and do whatever they want, but, you know, they, they kind of group up and... and in sight of others all the time and anchored oh, yeah. with others often, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And another little side note to, to that is I, I realize that some uh, of the schooner skippers got together and they went around the islands and picked up all the junk, you know, waste metal, all refrigerators and everything, and did their share of cleaning up around the islands. Oh, they, nice. They frequent. Well, we have in Maine the uh, Maine Trail, Maine Island Trail Association, part of the Island Institute, I believe, and there are islands that um, people go to all the time. Uh, there'll be regular stops for, you mm -hmm. know, excuse me, most vessels, and uh, tourists have their favorite spots. There's some that, uh, frankly, you're not welcome on. Some get over abused, uh, you know, and it's interesting uh, who's looking out for them and, and the traffic involved and all that. There must be a lobster bake on an island somewhere in this week. Yep, every uh, week where there's a shore bake somewhere. Uh huh. And it's nice because once we get to shore, everything we bring with us, it all comes back off. Mm -hmm. So we leave the beach just as exactly I tried we found to it. promote a little something. I'll give it a plug here. <laughs> uh, I think I don't matter who it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from. When you go ashore anywhere it's on the coast of Maine, you you lug back everything that you brought ashore plus one. Hmm. Never yeah. come out of the woods without <laughs> yeah. carrying something back. Yeah. 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 That's, a, that's always a good thing to do. And then, uh, of course, there's the whole thing about, uh, oh, uh, no-impact camping and low-impact camping. And, uh, frankly, where do you poo when you're kayaking? Uh, you know, uh, the whole boombox subject comes up, and that's not a loud... Uh, uh, musical uh, uh, playing, uh, you know, uh, radio mm -hmm. thing. When we say boombox, that's what you uh, put your, I guess we there call are, it. There is a movement to ban cell phones in all the national parks now, too. Oh, Interesting. Wow. Yeah, how are you going to do that? But anyway. Not sure. There, There is a certain uh, pristineness that, that the, I'm sure all the schooner captains are deserve good applause for, for, for promoting and uh, maintaining. What's for supper tonight, Anna? We're not through our fantasy day yet. <laughs> yeah, uh, probably roast chicken. That was my favorite dinner. That was, all right. a, that was always a hit. Roast in the oven. Roast in the oven all day long. I throw do it in the Do you cover it up or do you roast uncovered the entire thing? Uh, I just, I, it's uncovered, but I dip it in like Italian dressing and some breadcrumbs and just throw it in the oven and it sits there all afternoon, just slow roast. It's mm, just so, so tender and juicy. Mm. Could I, uh, as part of uh, just elaborating on this fantasy, I, I see a postcard in front of me now of sparkling water and a green island with some uh, spruce trees on it, but you've now got to imagine the, the uh, smell of, of Penobscot Bay and some roast chicken wafting out of the companionway <laughs> of the good-smelling wooden boat. I mean, this is just a good place to be, I'm thinking. And I can smell dessert, too. There's, uh, you know... Crisps and pies. I was gonna and say an apple strawberry crisp. shortcakes. Yeah. <laughs> Mike and I are into the pie. Hard, oh Lord. The show. Everything is made from scratch. 
It's no, your next really step good. will be to cook on a fancy yacht. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you got to learn how to mix drinks, and you got to <laughs> got to wear a uniform. Okay. I'll get on a boat like that and wonder what to do. I'm like, wait a minute, where's my wood stove? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A whole different gig, really. Now, uh, what about the? Uh, I mean, do we have wine with dinner? And if you bring it. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So it's a BYOB on the exactly. schooner trips. Yep. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Very now. Uh, you started at four o'clock in the morning. Dinner is probably uh, you know sunset uh, six seven o'clock at night. Six anyway. o'clock. Okay. Now we still got to clean up. Yep. There's a lot of cleanup to do, and if everything goes smoothly, I'm in bed by eight thirty. <laughs> <laughs> and then we got time to okay. So back to it. And again, how long is the chain to the to the leg of the stove there? <laughs> wow, because you've got quite a full time job there, don't you? Yes. Yeah. Yep. You cook commercially ashore as well. I sure do. Yep, that's what got me into the boats. Yeah, I already knew how to cook. Um, you know, uh, a more uh, relaxed pace. Uh, I'm, I've never cooked in a commercial kitchen. I'd be horrified by the pace of that. <laughs> got to be a little bit more um, under control on the schooner, isn't it? A little bit, yeah. But um, it's a set menu, so I'm serving the same thing each week. So, it, like I said, it gets down to a science, and it's definitely easier as you go along. So you're just doing Preparation that. and efficiency. Ruthless, mm-hmm. overwhelming exactly. efficiency. Yes. That would be the key. <laughs> yeah. Yep, just keep plugging away at it all day long. We've been listening to a conversation from the November 2005 edition of Boat Talk. Sort of a Boat Talk dinghy, if you will, a uh, small edition therein. And uh, we've been listening to Anna Miller talk about her experience cooking on some of the main wind jammers along with Captain Giffy Fole, the famous marine surveyor, and hosts Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague. That's the final portion of this month's Boat Talk. With luck, we may be back live next month. Thanks for supporting Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill.